Good morning and welcome back to another dispatch from Holly McKay. How are you doing this morning, Holly? I'm doing well, thank you. Very good. Hey, today we're going to turn our attention to issues happening in Europe, uh, one in Ukraine and the other one in Russia, because you wrote a couple of articles about that. Uh, let's talk about the first one having to do with how uh, cryptocurrency has been used as a substitute for getting around difficulties with government currency in Ukraine. Yeah, well, it's interesting because uh, Ukraine obviously is in the news for the horrible war that has been happening there. And um, I think it's also interesting that the Ukrainian government has really embraced cryptocurrency. It's encouraging people to um, donate using cryptocurrency. It's sort of using a lot of those donations, especially while their financial system is in disarray. Um, and it's really kind of embraced this this new technology, which comes from the blockchain. And it's interesting because so many countries, including the United States, are sort of still grappling with how to kind of use this. And, and uh, you know, our government really hasn't embraced it, um, say, to the degree that, that Kiev has. So it's sort of been interesting looking at it at that point of view. And um, as you know, I, I spent uh, quite a bit of time in Ukraine, both before, during and, and sort of after the invasion this year. And so something I thought was really interesting was I actually went to Belgium, um, where I met up in in the countryside with a a lovely young Ukrainian girl named Victoria, who, like so many people in Ukraine, I think it's five or six million now, um, have had to leave her home, leave her country. Um, And the way that she was sort of able to get out was through, um, you know, donations or funding that that came all through cryptocurrency. and, And that was sort of the only way that her driver and other people could get her uh, safely out of the country. And so um, it sort of seems to be kind of one of the first times that we've really seen these crypto-funded evacuation efforts uh, during a time of war. Yeah, it's very interesting because, um, as you know, having been in many war zones, uh, the the cash crunch. I mean, I remember when you were in even Afghanistan last year where cash became almost impossible to get out of banks and, uh, you know, people had, you know, resort to, um, alternative means like, uh, the old, 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 old version of cryptocurrency, which would be Hawala, uh, in, in the Middle East. But, um, are you seeing or do you think that, that this form of making money flow in the middle of tumultuous events is, uh, is that a significant thing you've seen compared to other times that you've seen before this kind of stuff came around as far as, uh, making, making it so people can actually have the funds to go do what they need to do in these, uh, disrupted zones? Yeah, I think not only inside Ukraine, and, and mind you, we've got drivers, fixers, other people that journalists work with that are accepting these forms of, of payment because there really just isn't um, kind of a, another means to be able to get actual hard cash. And uh, and then we also have to remember when these many million people leave the country, they're going oftentimes to these foreign lands and they're essentially penniless because the Havinia, which is the Ukrainian currency, um, it essentially has no value right now. And I know for myself, even when I was in Poland and I went to exchange w- whatever I had before I was coming back to the U.S., um, they wouldn't even take it. So it really, you know, for so many Ukrainians, and this is all they've got, um, 
you know, it's it's heartbreaking. So this is where, you know, we sort of see this new gap, gap and, and the cruciality of crypto going forward. And I sort of used the story of Victoria as being um, to able to kind of explain this to people, because I think, including myself, so many of us are skeptical on, on how a lot of this works. Um, but you really sort of see the importance of it when electronic cash transfers and, and you can't withdraw foreign currency. And it's kind of one of those um, sticky things that is still a small part, but is essentially a small part that does hold the economy together. And, and Victoria, um, she was an employee of a company called Gala Games, which is a gaming company that essentially runs on that Bitcoin platform. And so her work really, you know, went to many different lengths to, to get her out um, and it was just sort of an, one of those terribly draining took days, you know, there wasn't really any place to go. And even when she looked herself at going to Poland, um, that really wasn't a viable option for her. So um, she ended up having to, you know, to go through to Belgium where she had another employee that's kind of taken her in. But um, in, in addition to this, you know, really tragic story of people having to leave their country during war. Um, you also sort of see some of these, uh, I guess, silver linings, uh, if you will, and, and how they can sort of be a lifeline for people. And in this case, that was certainly a lifeline uh, for Victoria. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, you know, it, um, it's, um, uh, as, as, as you noted, uh, many countries in the West are still struggling with exactly how this stuff works. There's a degree of skepticism with it, but definitely there are little silver linings that turn up and you found one of them. So it's a very good story, actually. I, I, I enjoyed reading it. Um, let's move to the next one, which is the, um, the story you did having to do with the, ins and outs, difficulties and complications of getting Russia out of the pickle that it is in and how it all boils down to the fate of Vladimir Putin. Yes, I think so. I think many of us acknowledge really since the beginning of this war, this war isn't essentially about Russia, although it is, but it really comes down to this one man who who has been in power since 1999 in Russia. And, and this was really a decision that one man made, um, you know, to, to go into this country under very false pretenses. Um, and so I think the way that the world sees this, and certainly Ukrainians, it, it really does come down to this one man. And, and while he's in power, what what are the options for peace? And I certainly, um, you know, even if the war was to end tomorrow, you're not going to have those same peaceful relations between these two countries, um, despite their shared heritage, despite that families live on both sides of that border, and that um, many speak the same language. So you really are looking at, at this one man who doesn't seem to be, you know, willing to to really let go. So the question then becomes, you know, what, what does it take to get rid of Putin? And certainly over these past couple of decades, he's, he's really formed what, what many people would perceive as being a, a sort of a, no coup government, you know, he's got very few people around him and, and those that he have around him are, are certainly, um, very stalwart to his point of view. And so, um, really it, it is a matter of trying to figure out, you know, what, what really can be done. And this, this can't be done from the outside. And as we've seen with anything that 
the United States has been involved in uh, when it comes to bringing down leaders, whether that be in Iraq or in Libya or in other places, it hasn't always been this uh, shining success story. So it certainly can't look as if any other countries, particularly not the US or Western countries, are involved in that. And that really comes down to the Kremlin itself and who and what and what can happen from the inside and who is willing to to take on that job. Um, and I, I certainly think, and based on, you know, my understanding of talking to different people, that that there are cracks in that and that we tend to just think, um, you know, everybody in the Kremlin is, is completely uh, in line with Putin's point of view. And I certainly think that has been what we've seen uh, on the surface level. But I, I think if we were to dig a little bit deeper, um, you know, seeing what's happening, I am I'm quite confident that there are fairly high level people that would be willing to to somehow do that. But I think my understanding and what I'm hearing is that can't be something that's sort of can't look like a um, you're shoving somebody out of power. And these things are are very delicate. And if anything were to happen, and mind you, still very slim chance of anything happening, but if anything were to happen, it would really have to be, um, again, look as if Putin was somehow willing to make that decision on his own or that the transfer of power was a soft transfer, not a hard transfer. Um, things like taking him to the International Criminal Court may have to be taken off the books. Um, you know, so there are certainly concessions that would have to be to be made in that. Um, another thing I really found interesting in researching all of this was the China aspect. And my understanding of it really is that Putin did go to China and, and somehow inform uh, Xi Jinping of this invasion, but perhaps not to the full degree of, of what he was planning in his head. And so it seems that he may have just kind of said it's the eastern areas, it's the Donbass region that he wanted to to seize, and that is kind of what China agreed to. Um, and there is this certain perception that China is kind of behind Russia in this. But I do think, um, you know, it is it is a geopolitical quagmire for, for Beijing, and that is because um, there is nothing more that China really despises than any country that has uh, taken land from it. And if you actually look at the history uh, Russia has taken more land from China than any other country in the world. Um, so China once claimed the very vast and resource-rich um, Siberian part, which is the Asian part of, of Russia, um, right to the east of the Ural Mountains. Um, and Russia really back in, um, you know, the early sort of 1800s, 1900s, and during the – it's been the place where it's really been clashes with the USSR. And that was really happening in the Cold War. But m- many decades prior to that, that is when uh, Russia kind of took that land uh, from China. And, and as we know, sort of with history, that China doesn't exactly have amnesia when it comes to those things. Yeah, no, the Chinese have a 10,000 year old memory of uh, things that have happened to them. And uh, yeah, I, I, I found uh, the, the, the two aspects of, of your piece that I found absolutely fascinating was the discussion of how the Chinese play into uh, what's going on now in terms of their interest. They're, they've definitely turned out to be people that are looking out for their national interest first, uh, despite what uh, the Russians were trying to tell the world that they had the backing of China. But um, I, I never actually believed that myself. I, 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 I've never really thought that the Chinese would act in the interest of anybody except China. And that's clearly beginning to play out. The other aspect of, of what you wrote that, that actually fascinated me even more is this concept of how you create a transition 
for Putin to leave the government without it turning into the acrimony of the entire place falling apart because that would result in civil war and Russia's collapse. The Soviet Union has collapsed once. The, if the Russian Federation were to collapse uh, uh, in a, uh, a a very disjoint form, uh, that creates a very large problem for the West in terms of the proliferation of nuclear weapons that uh, nobody wants to see. So, um, yeah, as I as I was reading your stuff, I ke- I kept wondering. I mean, you know, what is the West's interest in in terms of um, pushing Putin out? in a haphazard manner uh doesn't actually play into our interest either and uh and you actually ended your coverage in in the substack on that note and i think that was a very appropriate place to end it your thoughts final thoughts on on that in terms of you know is there a stable answer that uh you know this this goes beyond ukraine of course this has to do really with the the, the fate and danger of the future of the planet thoughts well, I think really when it comes to these things, you know, it does come down to diplomacy. And this is where it's a very complicated dance um, that we see, you know, where Washington doesn't exactly want to engage directly, you know, with the Kremlin, obviously, because Kremlin is enemy number one at the moment. Um, so they don't want to have sort of direct dialogue with them, but there really isn't another way out. And you could see this, um, I think there has been a lot of missed opportunities, say, for example, with Belarus. Um, I think that is another place where there could have been some sort of diplomacy in the years past um, to to try to, to sort of bring Lukashenko as much as he is a dictator, but to bring him um, to sort of the U.S. favor so that they weren't solely reliant on Russia. Um, and I think there are some sort of diplomatic gaps that, that have really been missed in all of this. And, and you could say that directly, you know, with Russia, despite these, um, grandiose gestures over the years and then these different new start agreements and, and trying to reset relations, which many administrations have tried to do. But I think at the end of the day, um, you know, the war's just not going to end. Uh, suddenly, you know, with a click of the finger, there has to be some sort of, um, agreement that, that, that can provide, and we keep using this term off ramp, but really at this point, unless there is some kind of um, sit down and talk about it, uh, I don't see the sort of kinetic conflict in Ukraine coming to an end uh, really anytime soon. Um, and, you know, it, it is going to continue to drag on and as, as incredible as Ukraine has been in holding uh, their territory and even in many aspects I'm reading about plans to sort of go in and take other places that Russia, including Crimea, has taken over the years. But at the end of the day, there there has to be that diplomatic dialogue. And this comes down to we do have to engage our enemies. And I think for too long there has been a, a hesitancy uh, to kind of do that. And uh, this is a case where I really think that needs to happen sooner rather than later. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, you know, I, I don't see this conflict. Uh, I, I actually see the continuation of the kinetics like you do uh, that war has to go on until a diplomatic solution is found because if uh if it stops all of a sudden then uh, the haphazard consequences could could manifest in things that we really don't want and um yeah there's a lot of work to do i i think the uh, what used to be the office of soviet studies that the cia has its work cut out for it in the future anyway Interesting discussion as always, Holly, and, and, um, uh, look forward to the next one. Thank you.